0: If God's Word, I'd love for you to turn to Mark chapter number 8. Mark chapter number 8. for using the computer for Sunday school. If at any time I'm too loud, just wave me down. I can adjust. This is a, a little tuned up on the sound system since uh, the last couple of weeks, and that's good. I just can't tell if it's too loud or not, so uh, if it is, you just, uh, just let me know, and we'll turn her down. Uh, Mark chapter number eight, if you would, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We're going to take a reading, the same reading that we've um, taken last week, verses 34 through 38, with an emphasis on verse 36 this week. Um, The book of Mark, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, you, you read these words, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will it or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. God, again, we come to You just by the grace of God. Father, I pray that we enter in boldly to the throne room of grace because that's exactly what Your Son purchased. So Father, help um, help us to um, run boldly to that throne room, Father, and to um, approach You by faith, believing that through Your Son You're able to accomplish all things for your honor and for your glory and for christ's sake father you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think so father we come to you now um under that, after the reading of your word and ask you lord and beg you implore you trust you by faith and um, to take the word of god father and make us more like your son uh, we know that this is what your spirit does this is what he accomplishes father this is one of the great reasons he gave the word um Father, that the Spirit of God would take it uh, to the very depths of our heart, divide asunder the intents, the thoughts, God, and um, bring dead men to life and make alive men more like your Son. So God, um, would you do that? Um, We recognize how inept we are. Father, we recognize um, just our great need of you um, to accomplish this work. At the same time, Father, we, we, we realize it's wholly your work, but we are responsible Um, to come faithfully to Your Word. So I pray, Father, would You help me to do that, Um, to hide behind the cross, to not preach or teach or declare any um, opinions, Father, or philosophies of men. Um, But, Father, just to to faithfully love and declare um, the truth of God's Word. Um, Father, I pray for the people. I pray for those that are listening um, here, Father, and um, by way of technology. Um, Lord, that you would just um, give them what they need today. Lord, I pray for our precious people. It's your bride. I pray, Lord, that you would just be with them, God. I pray that you would ease their anxieties. Father, that you would calm their spirits. Father, that you would um, just be with them, Father, as they sacrifice this time for you. I pray that it's holy for you, Father. And I trust that um, as we come to you now, and that you can give us a spirit of um, calmness, Father, a spirit of serenity, a spirit of submission, Father, and a spirit of joy as we approach your word. Whatever you require of us, Father, um, may we give you this day because of the worthiness of your Son. Lord, we love and thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Come back to Mark chapter number 8. And uh, what a joyful time. I pray that it will be for you. I know that some of you are visiting with us. Um, If you are just visiting with us, um, we've been trekking verse by verse through the book of Mark. And it has been, I trust, just a blessing um, to each of us. Um, It was my desire and I think um, necessary for the church. Um, I think it's probably the beginning of last year now. It took almost a year to get through eight chapters, possibly another year to get through the next eight. Um, But what a journey it's been as we've just tried to glean and uh, look into the life of our Lord and Savior um, and what He came to do, what He came to accomplish. And these next eight chapters truly reveal to us um, in vivid form exactly what that that looks like. Um, It looks like a suffering servant. It looks like a suffering Savior. It looks like a theology of the cross. It looks like um, Jesus Christ entering into the world, becoming human flesh, and becoming like us in all points um, as we are so that he could die for us and as us. He could do the things that um, we couldn't do, and he could be the man that we couldn't be. Um, he would be the second Adam. He would be the last Adam. He would accomplish that um, which Adam should have, um, but he but he did not, thus spiraling all of mankind um, into Uh, Sinfulness thus requiring Jesus Christ compelled by his love for his bride to enter into the world um, to save sinners like us. Paul would say to save sinners like him of whom he is chief. Um, That's hard to believe considering I know my heart um, and you probably know yours Um, It's in this portion of Scripture that um, you really, in the Gospel of Mark, um, Jesus Christ openly and plainly begins to reveal what that looks like. Um, Up until this point, there's been shadows and pictures and parables. He's spoken illustrations for a number of uh, reasons and in a number of ways. But when you get to Mark chapter number 8, you kind of see a demarcation in the book. And now he begins to open up, um, the previous passage says plainly, boldly, confidently. And he takes his disciples and the people aside um, and he declares to them um, what the truth is and what the truth openly and plainly um, looks like. Last week we focused in on that first phrase in Jesus' words in verse number 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we looked at that in reference to the gospel. That's a gospel call. Um, that's a gospel declaration. That's a gospel proclamation. Um, In this context, and in many other contexts, um, that's what faith looked like. So I thought that um, salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the glory of God alone. Amen. Amen. But it's more than just a profession of faith. As James says, uh, faith without works is dead. Um, That there is an outflow of good works, of righteous works, because of the accomplishment of Christ's activity in our hearts and souls that the inevitable fruit of a converted sinner the evident the inevitable fruit of a person who puts their faith in christ repents and moves forward um, is going to be um, the fruit of righteousness the fruit of love the fruit of the spirit um, joy love meekness perseverance uh, temperance and so forth and, and so on um, so we're not advocating i need to say that i'm not advocating for a a salvation by works And there's nothing in this world, there's no amount of skill, there's no amount of works, there's no amount of intellect, there's no amount of deception, there's not a a tower that you can build high enough. They tried that. There's not a a system of religion that could be ornate enough. There's not enough uh, a temple that could be as as glorious enough um, or rituals that could be um, holy enough or pure enough. There's not a life that could be um, uh, pure enough um, to which you could earn your way to Christ. No way in the world Um, it's 100% by grace and grace alone by the accomplishment of Jesus Christ upon the cross bearing your sin, satisfying the wrath of God um, and thus imputing to you, transferring to your account um, the very righteousness of a 33 year life of Jesus. That you get to heaven one day uh, only by the fact that your righteousness exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Only know that that righteousness is not of your own, but that righteousness is of Christ um, as he gives it to you as a gracious and a precious gift um, of no merit of your own. But whenever that happens in the heart and soul of a believer, when that truly takes root in the heart and soul of someone who comes to him by faith, um, we know that the inevitability and the imminency of of um, good works. Thus you will take up your cross, thus you will deny yourself, and you will follow me, the me being Jesus Christ himself. Man, what a harsh, or what a rough sermon that was, right? Um, You think that I'm just preaching to you every week, but I also, I live with it for about a week before it gets to you, and then I preach it to myself um, even more the Sunday afternoon um, and on into the next week. You know, um, d- uh, Jesus seems to lay before us um, an unattainable and an immeasurable requirement for us to deny ourselves. And it's reminiscent of, uh, the, uh, as we read last week, the rich man who comes and asks how he can inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him, Sell everything that you have. And what, is, what was the disciples' reaction? Like, who can do that? Who could be saved then if that's what you require? Uh, more than one time, the people and, um, and the disciples come to that conclusion and uh, Jesus turns to them and says those precious words, you know, with what, what is impossible with man um, is not impossible with God. That Jesus Christ can accomplish what man cannot. The Father, the Spirit um, can as well. Um, but at the same time, we look at it from a natural perspective and we say, who can do that? Um, I want to say to you today that you can do that by the grace of God, um, if you will repent and believe in Him. He will extend to you salvation full and free. And you will, as you um, gaze into the glories of Jesus Christ, um, not just begrudgedly let go of the things of the past and the things that you love, but as the man who buys the field for the treasure sells everything that he has, the Scripture says that he does it with joy. But today, you can't abandon and deny yourself with the utmost joy because of the Christ that is ever before you laid out by God Himself in the Scriptures. And that's God's desire, and that's my desire for you today. If you don't know Him, that today will be the day of your salvation. Um, whether you're 60 or whether you're six. Um, that if Christ is convicting your heart, bearing the law of God upon it, showing that you are a sinner, Christ compels you today to come. And so will I um, by his Spirit. But the question um, often arises why would I deny myself? Maybe I could ask that question uh, why should I deny myself? Maybe at the end of the sermon, or maybe you've heard sermons like it, and afterwards, um, we can often be somewhat self righteous and. And we can understand even the liberty that we have in Christ. Um, As Paul often denunciates, just the tremendous liberty that we have in Christ, and we can take our liberty and wave it like a a flag um, and even sometimes abuse that. Um, But maybe you're... Unsaved. Maybe you remain a sinner and you're wondering why in the world should I deny myself? And we looked at that term deny and we recognize that that, that that term deny is a, a, a clear demarcation um, of a personal relationship with someone. Peter used it of Jesus, denied him three times, said, I know nothing of this man. Um, Paul tells us, uh, to, as he writes to Timothy, that God cannot deny himself, that he cannot um, personally disassociate himself. His substance, his nature, and his character—it's an impossibility. He would cease to be gone. Well, here Jesus applies this to us in relationship to ourselves. It's a, it's, it's reflexive in nature. Um, it, it, the, the verb here is is speaking and drawing back to ourselves that we, um, as we come to Christ, are to um, there's to be a demarcation and we are to totally de- dissociate ourselves um, from ourselves. Everything that we were, the man that we desired to be, the purpose, the plans, the self exaltation, the self righteousness uh, everything that formulated around that God requires a man to abandon and that's why you see um, the, the, the gospel call um, in different forms to different peoples because Jesus Christ, um, uh, He points um, his, his arrow, his, his, his aim is at the target of the heart of man. And depending upon what idol man exalts in his heart, Jesus Christ comes to Him and aims the, 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 the gun, the bullet right there and says, that's the thing that you must give up if you're going to take up your cross and follow Me. Um, But why should I do that? Someone may ask. And I want to give you one of those reasons today. And then we will get to the next reason next week. Um, I wanted to tell you today that you should deny yourself um, because this passage um, teaches us of the worth and the greatness of the human soul. That demands that we follow Jesus. That the worth, that we should deny ourselves, take up our crosses, follow Jesus. Because of the worth and the greatness of the human soul. And because of that, it demands that we follow Jesus. Verse number 36. Jesus provokes just a piercing question um, to the disciples and to the people that are all around. And um, today for you. Today for me. And he asks this, for what will it profit a man? Let's start at 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus asks you that question. It's a simple question. In the process of gaining the whole world and losing your own soul, what is the profit there? What is the profit? Of course, this is a hypothetical and a hyperbolic um question because no man could truly gain the entirety of the world Um, but Jesus is provoking here us to think and I think that the term or the phrase um, gain the whole world is going to take form at at different times that it could be literal um, it is literal and it's symbolic that um, gaining the whole world may look different to you um, as it does to me that's why the gospel narrative often changes the gospel doesn't the gospel is the same faith and repentance Um, it takes form in denying self taking up your cross, following Jesus, clinging to Christ, looking to Him, um, abandoning self and clinging to Christ, but there are obstacles in each of our lives um, as by nature we, we love the things that we shouldn't love and we um, erect idols that we should not erect and thus God calls us to tear and to bring those things down and to, that Jesus would be raised and placed upon the throne of our hearts. Um, and that, 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 that it is literal here, but it's, actually, it's, it's also symbolic that, that the whole world that's going to be gained may look different for a father. It may look different for a mother. It may look um, uh, different for a single man or a single woman or a pastor or a, um, a, a businessman. Um, that it's going to um, be symbolic of that which brings us ultimate satisfaction and contentment and that thing which we are striving after and for outside of a life with God and outside of Christ. What would it in the process of gaining that and losing your own soul? He's asking the question: um, What is the profit? What is the profit? Gain the whole world. Think of, you can think of it in its most literal form. Think about a life with all the pleasures, all the riches, all the wealth, all the fame, all the success, all the happiness that a man could ever desire. Wouldn't that be wonderful, right? If you think about it, think of all the limitations that occupy our minds. I'm in the waking and the sleeping hours, the things that keep you awake and the things that won't let you sleep. Think of all the limitations that occupy our, 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 our thought life, our heart life. Think on all the things right now that burden you down, that cause you anxiety, that provoke worry. Imagine for a moment if all those things didn't exist. Because you had a limitless supply of money, of possessions, prestige, power. Positions, you name it. You know, because inevitably you come, and inevitably I come, and we come out of the world, we come out of 2020 and of 2021, thinking that man, um, this is a new start, this is a new day, this is a new year. It's gonna, we're gonna leave all that behind, and things are going to get better. Knowing that it's not why, because I brought myself into 2021. It's not about them, it's not about the world, it's not about the economy. Although I have. Uh, particular opinions and biblical convictions about a lot of that and what the issue and what the problem is but inevitably um, the issue with 2021 is is not all of that it's me i brought me into it and i brought all of my worries and all of my anxieties and all of my difficulties and all of the things that burdened me down with work and with family and with church and um, and i think on many days that man if i could just get this in place or if i had that or if we had if we could do this or we could um, do I, and I think about a day whenever all that's gone. And I think, man, that would be wonderful. Um, the thing is is that Jesus says that outside of Him, if that were to happen, it would, be, it would really just be an illusion. It would just be an illusion. Why? Because it would be at best temporary. Meaning that it would be end. And it would be illusory. Uh, meaning that um, ultimately it won't really bring true happiness. That the things that we think that we want are actually um, not the things that we need. And when you get the next thing and when that you do the next thing and when you obtain the next thing or the position or relationship or this or that, I want to ask you, has it ever brought true everlasting joy? It's temporal at best and it's an illusion at worst. It's Well, it's sinful at worst. People spend their lives pursuing these things and climbing the proverbial ladder yet never reach the level of joy and happiness that they desire. Some days I just wish God would give us, give me, give you, give all of us the things that we wanted the most you know Um, simply to show us that the world can't give us um, what we think those things can the problem is, is that most of us most people will never gain the whole world but we'll live deceiving ourselves as we progressively gain more and more holding out hope that we'll hit the ceiling one day and that we'll finally get the thing that we're looking for but it never happens so we live a life of self-deception, lying to ourselves. Um, if I could only get this, you know. We come out of the womb thinking, man, Christmas is coming around. If I could only get that. And we want more and we want more and we want more. Um, we travel through, um, through childhood and through adolescence and um, through singleness. And we wonder, man, if I could only get married, that that would fix all of my issues, And then uh, we look for that job and that career and then we finally get the woman or the man that we're looking for only to find out that they didn't really bring the true happiness that we were looking for. It's temporal and illusory at best. Um, we find the career and we think that if we get this, but it's only a month, two months later, we found out that the green wasn't uh, well, the grass wasn't as green as we thought that it would be and we need a new position. If only we had a new job, you know. And then we work um, for 30 or 40 years laboring after retirement thinking that, man, if I could just lay down um, this hoe or if I could lay down this plow, um, that my life would be better and I can live on a beach somewhere. And I can uh, collect seashells and I can just put my feet in the water and me and my wife can be together finally and I can lay aside this curse um, and carry it in. You now once the kids are gone and the career is done and, and I can just lay all these things down and then finally I'll be able to live the life that I've always wanted to live only to find out um, that when you put your, your feet in the sand and you put your toes in the water and you finally get the RV or the um, the beach house that you want. Um, that it's not all that it's cracked up to be, you know? And why? Because you took yourself. You know, if you want to keep it perfect, leave yourself out of it. Um, how do I know this? Um, because I know it. And because our world is filled with people who have gained it all, you know? Think about all the people who have all the things in the world, if that's the case and you think that everything's going to bring you happiness, if you could just have this and you could have just attained that, um, what about all those people that have gained it all? What about them? What about the millionaires? You think, man, they'd be happy, right? What about the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, whose motto would ask if they had enough, being some of the richest people in the world, and at one point, some of the richest, um, they said, when is enough is enough, they answered just a little bit more. Depression, drugs, and suicide are the middle and the end to those who live a life with a motto, just a little bit more. And that plagued many of them. What about Ernest Hemingway? Who achieved literary genius, fame, and wealth. Who ultimately ended his life in suicide with a gun. What about sports and entertainers? Like they should be happy, right? Surely they've obtained the true joy of gaining the whole world, right? They have fame, they have money, they have things, they have women, they have everything that they could ever want. They have the love of mankind. Everything that a natural man could want. Then you find men like Magic Johnson who had to make an announcement that his lifestyle led to a life-threatening and communicable disease. What about Robin Williams? You know, Who's the entertainer, comedic genius. Seems like one of the most joyful people you would ever meet. And probably a man who many um, even uh, lusted after and jealous over um, all that he had and all the joy in his heart only to end his life. In a sense, they'd gained it all. That's not to say that will all go this route, but it's undeniable that some of the saddest people in the world are those who have gained it all. What profit was it? But then we look and say and deceive ourselves and say, man, it's because of this, it's because of that. I wouldn't do that. You say, that's people. That's not me. You don't know me. And you've not actually, um, you know, you've not actually got to the heart of the issue, which is me and my heart. And I wouldn't carry those things the same way that they did. Or maybe you're saying you've not actually used the Bible to defend your position, right? Uh, is there anyone in the Bible that gained the whole world and yet was still miserable? I'm going to take you to Ecclesiastes. You might meet a man um, who gained it all. Who gained it all. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse number 1. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What prophet has a... Uh, that, that, sorry, that was verse 2. This is Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Who's this? This is Solomon. His ultimate conclusion is vanity of vanity," says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity means empty. Verse number 3, what prophet has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What prophet is it for a man to labor in which all that he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to place where it rose. The wind goes toward the south and turns uh, around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run. And he goes on, uh, verse number 8, All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is, Yet the eye is not satisfied with seeing it, nor the earth filled with hearing it. That which has been in, is that which will be. That which is done is that which will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity. Grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered you get it It's like out of all the glories of all the nations, all the country, everything that is here, everything that is glorious, I was even king over a nation. God set me to know wisdom. And guess what? I knew it. And He's going to say in a moment, greater than all that were in Jerusalem. Verse number 16, I communed with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. Have you ever grasped the wind? Have you ever got a hold of it? Have you ever just been outside and there was just such a gust of wind that just blew through and you grabbed a hold of it and you said, children, look at this. It's, fo- it's folly. It's a fool's errand. No man has ever bottled it up. No man has ever gained it. And that's exactly what he's saying. He said, I tried for all these things. And you know what it was? It was like grasping for wind. Every time, every time that I thought I had it, it slipped through my fingers and I was still out there like a fool trying after it again. Chapter 2. So what did I do? I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth." Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this was also vanity. So you know what he said? He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to withhold any pleasure from my heart. Wisdom didn't do it. You know, the glories of the world didn't do it. Um, everything that I had, the majesty of being king didn't do it. So I'm going to give over myself. So verse 2, I said of laughter, madness and mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched my heart out to know to gratify my flesh with wine. While guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under the heavens all the days of their lives. So what did you do, Solomon? I made my great works. I built myself houses. I planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which no water could grow. I I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yet, yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all those who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, uh, the delights of the sons of men and the musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all those who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom uh, remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, is what he says. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was all my reward of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on all the labor which I had toiled, and indeed, it was all vanity and grasping for wind. There was no profit under the sun. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And lose his own soul. Solomon says there's no prophet. There's none. Then I turned to myself and considered wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do that succeeds the king? Only that which he's already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. This is what he's saying. He's saying when a, when a, when a wise man died and a fool died, the same thing happened. They both went to the grave. He's saying that um, uh, I know that light excels darkness and wisdom excels folly and, and this, but the wise man's eyes are in his head, the fool walks in darkness, yet I perceive the same thing happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. What's all this gaining me? If, 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 if the same end to the fool is the same end to the wise, if the same end to the rich is the same end to the poor, uh, the, the ultimate conclusion is, is that there's no remembrance of anyone. That's what he says in verse 16. For there's no remembrance, more remembrance of the wise than of the fool Forever. Since all that is now is with me forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as a fool? That's what he says. Ultimately, we are made of the same stuff. And the wise is the fool and the fool is, is the fool. At the end of the day, we're all fools and we all go to the same place and nobody remembers us. And here in a minute, the impetus is, is that I leave it and I leave it to fools. I've built this great kingdom and it's temporal and illusory at best. Why? Because I've got to leave the kingdom. I've got to leave the buildings. I've got to leave the glories to fools. That's His ultimate. You say, like a man like this would be happy though, right? Verse number 17. Therefore I hated life. That's not an interpretation. That's literally His words. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. You think that when you had all of that, and you had the prestige, you had the power, you had the authority, you had the kingdom, you had the men, you had the women, you had the objects, you had the things, the stress of life would just just waste away. But he, did, but listen to what he says. He hated life. Why? Because the sun was distru- because everything that was done under the sun was distressing to me. It did not alleviate the stress. It did not alleviate why? Because because my life is not consolidated to me and me alone. I understand that my works carried on. Um, that, that, that my works are temporal, but they have an eternal um, nature to them. I love in uh, chapter 3, he goes on and carries on, I'd encourage you. As he talks about the sorrow and the distress and the stress of life. And he says there's a time for everything. And then verse number 9 of chapter 3 says, What profit has a worker from that which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You know why he was sad and you know why he was sorrowful. You know why he continued to be stressed and distressed. It's because he understood that this life was temporal at best. And that even though he could accomplish all that he desired to accomplish in this life, that he desired to accomplish more than that. Although here he does it in a temporal basis, from a temporal basis that he desires for his work to go on. It's not enough for a man to be happy here and now. Why? Because God has put eternity in the souls of men. Why do we have example of example of people who have achieved the greatest and the highest of natural success, and yet they are still miserable, miserable people? It's simple. Because there is much more to life than simply life. We all have a soul that nothing in this world could ever bring such that nothing in this world could ever bring lasting satisfaction and contentment to um, with material or objective things because it is not a material thing. We live in an age where people think that they can have it all. What they find when they get close or when they obtain that they've been running after the wind. They've actually been running after nothing at all. Nothing that will really matter. Um, why? Because they've been laying treasures up on earth and not treasures in heaven. They know as well as you know because you seek satisfaction and contentment in this life. And you desire for your life to mean something. Don't you? I think so. I think that's probably something that we all desire. You know, At the end of the day, we work and we labor, but we realize the work and the labor means nothing unless it means something. right? That's what he's getting at. You know, at the end of the day, like I've done a lot of good things, and I do a lot of good things throughout the week. And, and something that just plagues my mind on many days and many weeks is I wonder if it was worth anything at all. You know? That's the stress of life. That's the danger of sorrow, even the danger of affluence. Why? Because you can gain it all, and it, and it actually gained nothing at all. All you've done is strive after the wind. You may say, I'm good. I don't want the whole world, I just want this. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about that. Jesus is here teaching not that if you don't desire to be rich and have everything, then you're in the clear. The whole world, while it is literal, again, is also symbolic of the whole world. Or that which you were pursuing to be satisfied, content, and ultimately happy outside of Christ. It could simply look like your whole world could simply look like you. It could simply look like your endeavors, your pursuits, what you want, you know. The American dream—just to have a husband, a wife, three children, a two-car garage—you know, a good career. Um, I retire at 65. If I could only have that, that's your whole world. You need to realize that um, that can that profits nothing if you lose your own soul. And this is a reality. You say you um, just don't understand. I think I do understand. I think Christ understands. I think that was actually the impetus of the. Um, previous engagement with Peter and the previous engagement with Satan. Remember that a few weeks ago? What did um, Satan offer Jesus? What does Peter argue for Jesus? Let me give you the whole world. Why do you think it provokes that message now? Why do you think Jesus on the foothills of that is saying this? Uh, Because he understands and he understands that that is the heart of every man, even the heart of Peter to gain the whole world and he looks at Peter and he looks at the people and he says what good is it at all? If you gain the whole world, and lose your own soul. So Jesus sets before us not only a hypothetical yet real gain the whole world scenario, but also real potential for the loss of the soul. The loss of the soul. It profits nothing because it loses the soul. The question carries such weight because it calls us to weigh and to calculate the weight of a soul. In contrast to the value of receiving the world. It's such a startling statement because the soul is the very core of our being. In seeking to justify and feed the soul, you lose that very thing you were striving for. I'm sorry, I'm, this one is not working. I'm going to change that one too. see if the other outlet works. Um, there we go. In seeking to satisfy and feed the soul, you lose the very thing you're striving for. Um, that's, that's, that's the nature of the previous, right? Strive after your own soul and, um, or seek to save your life and you'll lose it. Lose your life and you'll save it. That you are seeking to save your life and spending every effort like Solomon did, like Peter did, like you will, like I do, like every man, every woman, every child given long enough will in this world. And if you seek to do that, you'll lose it. If you seek the profit of the soul, if you seek the profit of yourself, if you don't deny yourself, that's why you must deny yourself. Why? Because of the the the, the eternal nature of your soul. That's why. Verse number thirty-seven. Another question that he asks: What a man give in exchange for his soul? He assumes that they understand the soul. He assumes that they understand the nature of it. And he asks him a very penetrating question: What would you give in exchange for it? And I think it's rhetorical what would you give in exchange for your soul? I hope nothing. That's the point. There's nothing equivalent. The term exchange here, it's a price received as an equivalent for an article of commerce. So what is equivalent to your soul is what he's asking. There's no exchange of the material for physical. There's no equivalent here. Therefore, that can bring a transaction even even make it possible. The truth is um, that the man could give the world um, he could give 10,000 worlds and it would never match the value of a human soul. All the worlds and all the universe that are contained in it, everything that we know and everything that we don't know, the universes outside of our universes, that's the point, it's hyperbole, it's, um, it's, it, but it's not necessarily even hypothetical. If you could have all of that yet lose your soul, what would it profit? And the answer is nothing. It's illusory. Why? Because it's temporal at best. How does 80 years of bliss compare to an eternity of loss? That's the point. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? John Flavel, a little Puritan, asks a question as he meditates on this passage. He, says, I mean, he extends the question. He says, what would a man give in exchange for his soul once it's lost? What would the rich man in Luke 16 give just to have a drop of water upon his tongue? Jonathan Edwards says the soul suffering in hell would give everything that he ever had if he could postpone his suffering but for one more minute. Is there any amount of money? Is there any amount of wealth? Is there any material? Is there any relationship that he would not give to delay or postpone the misery of eternity? They would no doubt give it all if that be the case. If that be the case. This brings a paradox it's a man, right? A paradox of Christianity. Have you ever thought about that? Especially from a Reformed or conservative biblical perspective. You know, you stand up and you preach week after week, man is depraved. He's wicked. He's deserving of hell. But at the same time, you understand that not only is man depraved, yet man has dignity. Why? Because he has an immeasurable worth. In some sense, we preach that man is not worth anything at all, therefore he should deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him why because because there is an inherent worth and dignity placed in, placed in man upon creation that 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 no man could deny that should govern all of our activity in this world in accordance with Christ and with man Christianity has the answer it's that sociology can 't give a sufficient answer to the paradox psychology can 't um, you know the the question arises how could we have such humanitarian efforts such as Mother Teresa, yet at the same time, an unparalleled depravity in a man like Hitler. Right? Like How do you, how do you, how do you carry the two together? A man is wicked beyond measure, yet man is worth more than all the worlds and all the, and all the universes. And whenever you bring a little baby into the world, and when it's conceived, knit in its mother womb, even at, its, at the most basic of cellular levels, in an embryo, um, that thing weighs more than all the worlds. Yet at the same time, we beg them, then the moment he comes out of the womb, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. I remember one of the first people I ever gave the gospel to um, was Anna. She was about a week old, you know. Um, worth more than it all. Image bearer. Christianity understands it is revealed by God that man is more than just a bag of material, he's more than just genetics. He's more than just biological laws governing its, its functioning. He's a creation of God, whom God has breathed the breath of life in, and man became a living soul. Thus, man has great dignity. He's an image bearer of God. He has, uh, although he has great depravity, there's still something retained within him uh, that is unescapable. That's why in Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 6, the law of God comes down to Moses and says that if any man shed the blood of another man, the man then the image will be required of him. Justice comes forth because of the great brevity and weight of a man. Why? He says in Genesis chapter, six, or chapter 9 verse 6, because of the image that he bears upon his soul. Even though he is depraved, he is immeasurably worth something. Why? Because he was created to reflect the very nature, character, will, righteousness, and knowledge of God. There's something in him. There's something about him. Because of that, man has the capacity to have spiritual Comprehension of God and his law. Because of that, he has a conscience that has an innate sense of right and wrong and oughtness, what he ought to do and what he ought not to do. He has the ability to rationalize and reason. He has communicative abilities, not only with one another but with God himself. Ultimately, man was a living was made a living soul. Ultimately, we mean that man was made for God. Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter two. Why should you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him? Because you were made for God when you were made a living soul. Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 4, you read these words. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens... Before the plant and the field and the earth, in the earth, and, and before any herb and the field was grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. There was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. When you come to Genesis chapter 2, you see kind of a focused in um, portion of creation. You see the histories of the heavens and the earth. I love that. You know, if you were to actually to go to Genesis 5 and 6 and other places, you would see that same word history probably translated generations. The term generations, uh, it's kind of a, a structural portion of Genesis where he, he delineates a, a different section and starts a new journey. As he says in uh, Genesis 5.1, that these are the generations of Adam. Because Adam was born, this is the fruit of it. Um, this is a unique time when this exact same word is used for the first time, but there's no person attached to it. It's literally the history of the heavens and the earth. Because God created in Genesis 1, um, that day 1 through day 6, and He created all the heavens and the earth. This is the fruit of it. That God was preparing um, all of creation, all six days. It was a preparatory work for the culmination of His work, which would culminate in Adam and in Eve, in a being and beings that would be created in His Image. So no name. It's a, a generations, a history or account. The fruit of God's creation. What would God do? God would create Adam and God would create Eve and God would make them special and particularly and by how by placing the image of God in them um, and not just not not in them in the sense of a, 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 I think we think of the body and the soul as this this uh, disconnected type of. Uh, formulation because God has to communicate with us in particular ways to help us understand that there is a difference between body and soul but here Um, It's not speaking of a carcass with a a container of the soul in it. Literally, a man is breathed into life and he becomes a living soul, a soul-body entity where they're integrated. And that's why one day, not only will our soul be saved, but our body will also um, be renewed in a perfect fashion in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new age, um, in the age to come, um, as it's restored even greater than what it was originally fashioned um uh, one thing i want to draw your attention to and we're not going to spend a great deal of time in here but just to drive home the emphasis um is just the uniqueness of man in the creation of god i love genesis 1 i love genesis 2 i don't love genesis 3 as much uh, it's not because it's the word or anything less but it's kind of where man fail and um and that's why i bring myself into 2021 um but I also love Genesis three fifteen, where the seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. Praise God, the first gospel um, plan before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would enter in to suffer for these people and for you as well. But in Genesis chapter um, one through two three, what we see is the creation of the heavens and the earth. And what you'll find in Genesis one through two three. Um, For example, in verse number one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In verse number three, then God said, let there be light and there was light. You go down through all six days and what you begin to find is that the term God there is significant. The term God, it is literally just a general term for God. It's not to take away from um, what it means or who he is, But what you'll find is a progressive revelation all throughout scriptures as God attaches more names to display his character and communicate his character to us. But he uses a base word called Elohim, which simply means God. It's somewhat like a base or a root word uh, that other names will be built upon. Um, It's kind of like having a black and white picture and then later on color is added. It's it's not that it's not majestic or basic. In that sense, it's very majestic. It speaks of a, an omnipotent One who's brought all of creation into existence simply by the word of His mouth. That's Elohim. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 4, um, we see a new name. You may not be able to pick it up in your translations, but if you have a translation um, um, that makes a delineation in the English language, um, the term is probably changed from God in chapter 1 to Lord, all capital letters in chapter 2. Right in, that day, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. In verse 7, And the Lord God, so Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Here is the first time in Genesis' account that we see a change in his name. It's very interesting and seemingly significant. Why? Because it's the name Yahweh. It's God's divine name. Elohim would be like a title. Yahweh would be actually His name. It is the name in which is associated with His relationship with His people, predominantly all throughout the Old Testament. While Elohim speaks of majestic, omnipotent One, who's the Creator of all the world and the heavens, Yahweh speaks of intimacy. Um, You see in chapter 1, He's Elohim. He's majestic, omnipotent, speaking things into existence. And you can just sit back and try to think for a moment like what that looks like. I've seen some illustrations of that in videos and things when you go to places like Answers in Genesis or the, the Creation Museum or the Ark and they try, to, they try to display that in video form and you kind of get a, a, a small picture of what that might look like as things come from nothing to something. But that's, And there's an impossibility there to even to even think about that, um, to think about how God would accomplish that. But that's what Elohim is. Is that's what Elohim does? But when so, so that's what he does for six days um, through the creatures with mankind. He's just speaking. He's creating by his power. Um, but in chapter two, um, he binds himself to his creation by entering into relationship with them in a way that he does not with the animal kingdom. They are not Yahweh to him. They are Elohim. To you, to me. He is Yahweh Elohim. He's personal. It's intimate. The writer's tipping us off here. And if you were reading the original languages and a Jew is coming, like he knows that like this is the point in the, in the passage that it starts to get exciting. Um, why? Because in a similar way, I am many things to many people, but whenever I get to, to, to my family, I'm something uniquely to my children. Like they have a special name for me. They understand me differently. I have a special relationship with them that I don't have with all the other children here. I have a special relationship with my wife that I don't have with any other woman in all the world. So when they hear me call that name, it dictates responsibility. It dictates role. It dictates relationship. It's different. It's distinct. It's special. It's particular. Here's what he's saying. saying, I've created all the heavens and the earth. And regardless of what the evolutionary model says, and the atheists and the scientists and secular scientists of the age, um, you are distinctly different than stardust. It amazes me. Secular psychology, secular science, and biology, and, and atheistic uh, scientific, uh, and, and just the secular age. Many of them just undergirding much of the rhetoric of the day and uh, talking about the self esteem movement and a number of other things. Um, While well, they just got out of biology class and told them that they are nothing more than advanced primordial ooze. How do you tell a child that he's just an animal and he's just, um, and he's just um, a latent form of, uh, more progressed form of stardust. Um, and then you want to say, son, you're special. You know, it makes no sense. And that's why many people have advocated for the fact that, that the animals and that the plants and that the earth is, 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 is in much of a fight to fight um, more than man. That's why we can abort, you know, 300,000 babies a day, but let's say save the oceans. Let's save the whales, you know? Why? Because they have a, 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 a misunderstanding of what image of God, Imago Dei, is and what it means. And I'm not saying abandon the earth, it's God's creation, it's His. You should take care of it. If you have animals, you should uphold them and you should take care of them. But you know this that if you were to gather all the animals, all the plant species, all the bacteria, all the stars, all the planets, all the universes, and all of the world, if he gained it all, what would it profit if one man lost his soul? Nothing. They measure nothing. Nothing at all compared to one little baby born into the world. They measure nothing compared. Why? Because God created them distinctly different. The writer here, it should, the, the, the Jew, the Christian, um, the one who knows the Creator, Jesus Christ Himself who created all the world, um, the, the writer is tipping his hat, Moses is writing, and he wants us to understand that this is God entering in with us. This is God with us in some form. This is God with us from Genesis all the way throughout the Gospel. Um, God has always been God with us, God coming to us. Um, and it's different than creation. The name underscores The self-sufficiency of God and His presence with His people. In other words, when the Israelites were introduced to Yahweh, it was Yahweh is the God who drew near to us in Exodus 3 and 4. He entered into covenant with us. He's present among us. He blesses and He keeps us. Why? Because we are His. We are His. Right out of the gates, Genesis 2, uh, you read, God simply yet profoundly and intentionally changes His name to relay a message to the reader. And to you, that you are unique, you are different, you are separate from creation. I have a relationship with you that I have with no other creation in all this world. You weigh more. You mean more. Um, If everything was bottled up, it wouldn't be as important or as of the same worth and value as you. Actually, all that was for you. Moses desires Israel to read the story of Genesis and right out of the gates to be reminded of the God that covenants with man. God is present among them and always will be because of the gracious act of God. So He creates them differently as well. Verse number four, He forms them out of the dust of the ground. He doesn't speak them into existence. The term form here is not used any time prior to this either. There's, there's uh, general words to do or to make in, the, in Genesis chapter 1 up to this point here. Um, uniquely, um, God forms them out of the dust of the ground like a clay. It gives the image of a clay and a potter. That God would come down and form him and put his hands upon him and even bind himself by putting himself into him. Not that he is God or not that he's become deity, but there's something uniquely special um, that binds him to him, that gives him abilities to communicate and to interact even with God himself. What's the uniqueness? The human soul. The human soul. It's amazing. The most amazing thing about being a human being is not the physical intricacy of the human body. It's not the uh, miles and miles of nerves and endings. It's not the vasculature system. Um, it's not the brain. Don't get me wrong, those things are amazing. Much of the world has equal, if not more majestic material processes than even we do. The thing that makes us unique is the fact that we have a soul. That was made for God. Here, God is not um, only speaking Adam into existence. But now that which he spoke into existence, he is speaking to. Now, he's not just a product of the created word. We have an entity, a soul body entity now that has the ability to receive that word with joy and submission and obedience. Thus we see the origin of man. That man's existence is a direct act and um, as a result of a direct act of God and the pinnacle of creation. And that man occupies the greatest position and significance and importance of all of God's creation. And that why? Because he made him a body and a soul. Matthew ten You've seen the sparrows. Are you not more valuable than they? That God... Um, created man in his image, but man has marred that image in chapter 3 in verse... um, I'm not sure which particular one. Chapter 3, serpent ends into the garden, sin enters in, man rebels. Is the image of God lost? Martin Luther would argue yes. I'm going to side with many others who say no. The image of God was marred, but it was not lost. We see that all throughout the scriptures. In Genesis 9, you see it in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says man was made in the image and glory of God. You see it in James chapter 3 and verse number 9 when it says that we were made after the similitude of God. um, Therefore, control your tongues. That's a paraphrase, you know. That men and women are created in the image of God. And this is something I love to just hammer home in my own heart and life from time to time and you as well. One of the most practical things that you will ever engage in your entire life if you become to understand one of the most sanctifying tools as a believer that you'll ever um, come to grips with in your heart and your soul, um, that will just, has, is, is like an octopus with a thousand tentacles that will reach to every area of your life as you get a robust uh, um, uh, doctrine of the of mago day image of God. You're going to talk about social ills. You're going to talk about the abortion issue. Understand the image of God and what's happening at the abortion clinic um, tomorrow on State Street in the corner of Slaughter. You want to talk about um, you want to talk about um, anger issues? You know, let's go to Matthew and uh, Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says that if you hate your brother uh, in his heart without cause, it's like murder. You're a soul murderer. Why? Because you're murdering the soul. Man is made in the image of God. If you understand that man is made in the image of God, uh, then you understand the value and the dignity and the respect that is owed to this man. Therefore, don't murder his soul. You know, you want to battle lust in your heart and your soul, men? Understand the image of God, that women are made in the image of God. That they have inherent dignity and worth and value. And how dare you and I look upon a woman the way that we often do whenever that person was created in the image of God. And we want to gain pleasure off of the backs of the sinfulness and the depravity of mankind. You want to talk about racial issues? Go Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 with the mystery of God as He brings together um, all races, uh, Jew and Gentile, everybody of nations, how God created one race and one blood in the beginning. You want to you you destroy racism? You understand that every person is made in the image of God. You want to talk about all of the political ills and all of the social ills? You want to talk about loving your wife more? Man, she's an image bearer of God. You have no right to treat her the way that we do Sometimes. And talk about your children. You know, you say, I, "I want to, I want to train them up and to disciple them more than get a get a robust fact that these people were made for God, and it is your responsibility and my responsibility to train them up, why, so that they may know Him and communicate with Him and relate to Him and to serve Him and to honor Him, like that. What I have in my home is like six little image bearers of God, like who God made for Him, not for me." For him. He knit them. As we read at the beginning of the service in Psalm chapter 139, like he formed them and knit them in his womb, in, in the womb, in my, in my wife's womb, and he did it for himself, and he did it for his sake. And that's why you're called to take up your cross, deny him. Why? For Christ and for the gospel's sake. Not for me. I'm not asking you to do it for me. I'm not asking you, children, even to do it for your parents, although that's noble and good. The ultimate reason that God created you was for him. He is the source. And the end of all of creation. That He's not just the Creator who speaks it into existence. But on that sixth day He made something. He made you little boys and little girls. Little ones, older ones, husbands, wives. He made all of you for His glory. And thus we are to labor to that end. That's why you should deny yourself. That's why. Because you are an eternal being who has been created in the image of God for that singular purpose. That He has stamped upon you and in you and made you as He breathed the breath of life into you, knit you in His womb for this sole particular purpose. And it's more valuable than all the world. Not only you, but the fact that you are what you are so that you could be what you could be like is more valuable. That's why you have the opportunity and ability today to lay up treasures in heaven. You, God has placed eternity in your souls. Have you ever come, have you come to grips with lately or ever the fact that you will never die? Never. I understand the physical, I understand the body goes. But the soul lives on forever. Why should I deny myself? Why should I deny myself pleasures? Why should I deny this? And why should I, like I'm a pretty great person. You know why you should do it? <coughs> because you've been living for yourself for too long. And you weren't created for that. Um, and for that purpose. That God, by virtue of simply creation. And we could go to passage after passage on that. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. Luke, I think it's 17. who speaks of just by virtue of creation. Like you owe God everything. And he owes you nothing. Full obedience. Wholesale. Like if God never gave you a reward because you fulfilled everything in the world that he's, he, he made you to create, he created you for, like you would earn no reward. So then how in the world do we get Heaven. God comes to us in human form, Emmanuel, God with us, covenants with mankind, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, all throughout the Old Testament. Why? Um, to create a relationship with you, thus that you could attain glory. You failed in it. So there's a new covenant that needed to be wrought. Jesus says, I'm going to do it myself, uh, buys himself a bride by his own blood. Um, why? So that you can be created and renewed in the image of God, that you may be able to fulfill the, not only the original purpose, but a greater purpose as you extend and display grace to a lost and a dying world. Thus, Jesus Christ receiving the reward of his sufferings, all the nations culminating and coming um, as true image bearers of God, the images retained in salvation and in redemption, such that now you know and can communicate with God in a special fashion that the rest of the world cannot. Why should I deny myself? Because this is who you are. This is who you were meant to be. This is what God deserves. Not only did he create you for it, But he sent his only son into the world to die to facilitate that very thing. That the image of God would be spread to the ends of the world. Because he's worthy. He's worthy today to receive the reward of his sufferings. That's why he created you. Give him the glory due his name today. Therefore, deny yourselves. Take up your cross. Follow me. Know this. If you walk the other direction of your life thinking that you by strength or intellect or skill or whatever it is, power... And that you're going to save your life. You won't. You'll lose it. You'll lose it for all eternity. You don't get them back. You just don't. You don't. When we talk about the precious nature of, of those babies that are being knit in the womb, you are of equal value. You're worth more to God than, than everything in this world. Everything. Everything. And he sends his only son now. He preaches the gospel that you, might believe. I beg you implore you on the authority of Christ to believe. Why should I deny myself? That's why. That's why. That's why. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world lose his own soul? What, what, is, what would a man exchange for his soul? That's the question you have to answer. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you the answer is nothing and everything. He gains nothing. But on that day I guarantee you you would give everything and anything to exchange that for your soul. You can't change the soul. God created it. It is what it is. You can't opt out. You are what you are. Give God what's due His name. That's why. You should deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow Him. And that is that is an amazing thing. Beyond measure. Remember the paradox. Depravity. Yet dignity. Man. We all deserve hell. But God gives us heaven in Christ. Therefore, come unto me all you that labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ. God, I sit before, stand before your bride. What glory, what majesty, what beauty that you have created for yourself. Um, Father would you help me to love them as you have loved them would you help me to see the, just the inherent value that is in them Will you help them to see the inherent value that is in them as well God that they are body soul entities created for the glory of God fallen in Adam but raised to new life in Christ Father um Would you help them to see and hold in a good balance, Father, um, their worth and their value, but also their necessity of Christ. May it not um, bolster our self-esteem to think that God created us special or particular for a purpose, but to realize that that's simply the grace of God as well, more than we ever deserved. And even more than that, creation, He covenants with us to bring us to Himself and to save us from ourselves. So help us, Lord, to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Help us to understand the worth and the value of a human soul, the souls of our children, the souls of our wives, the souls of the world, Father, and thus be part of the impetus. Of course, Christ is the ultimate impetus, but part of the impetus that, that uh, just gives us a robust um, value for the lost, value for one another, value for the church. God, we need you because this doesn't come natural. Father, we need you to teach us that the Spirit of God would just overwhelm our souls, Father, with His truth, that we take you to the depths that only you can go, Father, and that we would walk away um, forever changed, made more like Christ as we shared, um, shared in his um, his opinion, uh, his, his his conviction, uh, biblical truth, Father, of who man is. Lord, we love and thank you, and just pray that this um, that this sermon, this time we have together, has eternal value. Um, we trust you with that, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.